A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking with Holly Sullivan of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. I told you we were going to be talking about the Northeast uh, on yesterday's program. Uh, And yes, we will be talking about Connecticut today. Uh, Monday, we're going to be talking about what's going on in New York with uh, one of the latest lawsuits taking on uh, one of the many gun control laws in the state. But today, as I said, our attention on Connecticut, where uh, earlier this week, a uh, hours-long hearing held for a number of bills, uh, most of them bad bills, uh, aimed at legal gun owners and as we reported at the Bearing Arms, massive opposition uh, of about a little less than 5,000 individuals who submitted written testimony, 4,500 or so were opposed to the gun control bills. There were only about 300 or so in support of Governor Ned Lamont's uh, proposals, including expanding the state's existing ban on so-called assault weapons, establishing uh, more waiting periods uh, for gun purchases, raising the age to uh, purchase a firearm. Actually, no, I think Connecticut may have already done that. It is so hard to keep track of all of the anti-gun legislation that uh, Governor Ned Lamont has proposed. But you know who could do it? Holly Sullivan, head of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. Had a chance to speak with Holly earlier today about that hearing, about the gun control bills, about the uh, lawsuit that CCDL has filed against the existing ban on modern sporting rifles. Take a look and a listen to this uh, beefy conversation with Holly Sullivan. Holly, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's good talking with you. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've got a lot to talk about. Um, let's start with the uh, mammoth hearing this week in Connecticut. Um, As I noted, there were almost 5,000 people who submitted written testimony. Based on my count, about 4,500 of them were opposed to the governor's gun control bills. Um, Talk about this hearing and the reception that these gun control bills received. Yeah, so this was, um, if you thought Connecticut was already nutty, it's gotten even nuttier. Um, And there's a lot that transpired in the actual hearing that we can chat about, but um, you are correct. Um, It was well over 4,000 testimonies that our our people, um, CCDL, worked so hard uh, to to get out there. We were at game dinners and at gun stores, and gun stores were, you know, encouraging customers to speak up and use their voice. Um, So super, super proud of the level of engagement that CCDL was able to really get going um, in this. And if you notice, there were very, very few in support of the bill. Um, I think it was like 98% of all the written testimonies were all our folks. Um, So very proud of that. Um, But that being said, it's Connecticut and they have a supermajority on the other side. So despite how much testimony um, was submitted, of course, these legislators are going to make the decisions that they make. um, And we hope that we were able to influence that and at least, you know, get to the pieces of it that truly don't make sense, of which there are many. So we can talk more about that. Yeah. Well, okay. And I and I want to go back to last year for a second because you know Governor Lamont tried this last year. He had a bunch of gun control proposals that ultimately did not get approved. Right. Uh, and we talked about that at the time. The the fantastic work that CTDL members had uh, had done in engaging lawmakers and pointing out some of the flaws in these proposals. Do you see a? Is there a different? Uh, attitude or appetite for gun control uh, among Democrats this year, the, the type of gun control measures that Lamont wants to see in place? 
Um, so Lamont won his reelection in the fall. So where we were in an election year last year, and maybe, you know, some folks were a little cautious with the election coming up is which ways they should go. That bill was largely carved out. So um, almost all of the actual gun control pieces of his bill last year were omitted. And the final version just included really mostly funding for police gun trafficking, which we would were in support of. We want criminals to be if they're if they're, if they're trafficking guns in our state they should be arrested and prosecuted. Um, this year is a lot different. Um, I think there is a massive appetite in the governor's office. However, I'm not certain there's a massive appetite among the people. Um, so one of our local papers, the Waterbury Republican American, did a survey this week and asked people if they think that the pending laws would be effective. And it was overwhelmingly people said, no, they don't think it would be effective. Um, so, you know, I think among the actual constituents, there is not an appetite for it, but there certainly is a very aggressive push in the governor's office, despite what their constituents think. Okay. All right. Now, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, happened during the hearing, uh, because it wasn't just these gun control bills, right? So the the mayors, uh, I guess, mayors of Hartford and uh, New Haven, and I guess Lamont is supporting this too, right? Maybe so you can say, uh, oh, so look, I'm getting tough on criminals too. They were backing this bill that would increase penalties for repeat offenders, people who had previously been convicted of either using the gun or using a gun to uh, in, in a shooting or at least convicted of uh, brandishing a firearm on multiple occasions, right? So we're not talking about first-time offenders. And I thought this was really fascinating, Holly. The bill got a lot of pushback from Senator Gary Winfield, uh, yeah. who talked about, listen, there are a lot of people in, in my district who I represent who may be illegally carrying a gun around, not because they want to go out and commit an armed robbery, but because they live in a dangerous community. Uh, and he was afraid that, you know, if you go after, if this bill gets passed and those guys are going to get uh, caught up in the law. Um, a couple of the mayors said, listen, if, if, we, if, if we don't pass this bill, which is aimed at repeat offenders. What's the point of passing all of these other gun control bills that are aimed at, you know, legal gun owners? Now, I would say, Holly, that there's no point anyway, right? It doesn't, it's not either or. Um, but talk if you can about uh, Senator Winfield, because it seems like if Senator Winfield is concerned about, uh, you know, targeting repeat violent offenders, there's no way that he could be consistent and support the governor's gun control proposals that are aimed at legal gun owners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is shocking to be sitting in that room, a room full of people who have been fingerprinted. They've been background checked. They've paid hundreds of dollars to get their permit. They do everything right every time it's asked of them. And then a legislator who is a ranking member on that committee is sitting there and saying, well, I have a lot of people in my community that illegally own firearms, but they're not shooting the place up, so we shouldn't prosecute them. Why is there such a double standard? And that's what's really getting to the core of how bananas it is here in our state that they're saying, you guys that did everything right, you can lose, you can't even, the part of the bill is you can't even go into a restaurant that serves alcohol anymore. We're going to take away every ability for you to do all of the things that go, you know, that are part of your daily life. But for these people who are breaking the law, we should be lax on them because they haven't shot someone. It's ludicrous. And for us to sit there and hear that from especially many of us that have been in this fight for a long time saying crack down on the criminals, we're not the ones committing crimes. Just the possession of a firearm while not being permitted is a crime and it should be prosecuted. It, it, it You know, it is a 
it's a glaring double standard. And it's, and it, it, you know, again, you talk about how nutty things are in Connecticut. Is it fair to say that the bill that would focus on repeat offenders is more controversial than the governor's gun control proposals, at least in the state legislature? Well, I think after this hearing, yes, I wasn't expecting it to be. I actually thought I, you know, kind of assumed that that bill would just kind of move along um, because it has the support of uh, Democrat mayors throughout our uh, our state. Um, so I was very surprised uh, to actually hear that dialogue back and forth. And, I, you know, and I, I think it's really important and and hopefully the media is starting to pick up you know, some of those inconsistencies and have some critical thinking behind it and say, what are we doing here? So, um, you know, if nothing else, I think it really does further our argument that we need to be consistent. And if we're, we're and to our governor's point, if you're not tough, you're not tough on crime, if you're not tough on guns, you have to be serious about gun offenders, not us. Yeah, I, listen, I'm with you, but I, I you know, I, I think uh, I think the governor's made it clear that uh, whatever his concerns are about public safety, he views gun ownership uh, as a threat to public safety. He views the Second Amendment not as a right, but as a wrong uh, yes. and is willing and, and eager uh, yep. to do anything he can to eradicate that. Right. Even if it's unconstitutional. Right. Uh, which. Brings us to um, the lawsuits that CCDL has filed. You know, the, one of the governor's bills would expand the state's existing uh, ban on so-called assault weapons. That ban is currently being challenged by CCDL. Um, what can you tell us? Where Where is that case, Holly? Yeah, so it's very slow moving. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, a month ago, um, I filed a request to a judge for an ex parte restraining order against our governor, as well as our commissioner of state police. Um, generally, something like that would, you know, at least be heard relatively quickly. Um, it's been very frustrating that there wasn't a lot of uh, motion on it. We did have a status conference last week. Um, but, you know, it's just it's one of those things that unfortunately, um, even though the court system is what we rely on to fix wrongs, um, feet are, I mean, in my my personal opinion, it seems like feet are being dragged to actually move this along. Um, for anybody who doesn't understand uh, the situation here with um, the pistol braces, uh, Connecticut is the only state that's really affected in the way that we're affected um, because of the ATF's uh, reclassification around the braces. Um, we cannot come into a compliance. We can either be federally compliant or we can become state compliant, but we cannot be both because the the, the definitions are conflicting of one another. Um, so we are truly at an impasse and in a holding pattern because if we we cannot file a form one, the ATF will not accept form ones from Connecticut residents um, from what they've said. Um, so so we're really stuck. We're either going to break federal law or we're going to break state law. Um, so we're seeking for a judge to uh, grant some relief on that. Um, but that has not happened yet. OK. All right. Uh, what, 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 so so what's next for the uh, the governor's gun bills? Uh, there was this, again, uh, you know, hours long hearing, but no vote was taken. Right. Correct. So the way that the, and that's that's common. That's normally the way the Judiciary Committee works. They have the hearing. They listen to us and then they're going to go. Um, they're going to go into chambers and they're going to fight it out. Um, you know, so we'll see what pieces of it they say. OK, this part makes sense. This part doesn't make sense. Or, you know, and the bill, the final language of the bill that comes out of the committee may look significantly different than the language that we saw, but that's yet to be seen. Um, and I have to give, you know, major kudos to the legislators that sat up there and kind of went, 
wait, why are we doing this? And and is this logical? And is there evidence behind this that this is going to be fixing problems? Um, and, you know, the harsh reality is we know it doesn't. And there were some really interesting uh, testimonies given that actually attest to that even from the other side. With when questioned, a lot of the other folks would say, well, I don't know it firsthand, or I read it somewhere, or, you know, actually, um, we don't have that evidence. Um, you know, so there was a lot that came up in that hearing that's very telling, um, you know, but it's frustrating because the other side overwhelmingly gets to control the narrative. Um, our Lieutenant Governor Susan Beiswitz uh, held a press conference two days ago giving essentially false information um, to the public about how a person obtains a firearm in this state, you know, and I believe that that is absolutely negligent and reckless and instilling fear, particularly in women that have no reason to be afraid of gun owners in this state. What 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 does the lieutenant governor say? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so on, uh, they were talking about domestic violence, and um, I actually was at work all day. Unfortunately, I have a day job. This I don't get to do this full time. Um, so I was at work, and I got a call from a reporter, and he wanted my feedback on on a quote. And I said, "Well, can you read it to me?" And he read me her quote that essentially said that um, we need waiting periods in Connecticut because um, a person that's you know in a, in a in a heated situation can walk into a gun store and with the right document walk out with a gun. So I think the average person at home is thinking, oh my gosh, what do they just need a driver's license, a passport? Like what's the right, you know, it seems so, like nothing, but the harsh reality is in order to get a permit in the state of Connecticut, um, it is up to eight weeks just for your temporary permit. And at that point you've been background checked, fingerprinted, demonstrated proficiency in live fire, taken the safety class, you're $400 into this. Um, you get your temporary permit. Once you have that temporary permit, you can neither buy a gun nor can you buy ammunition. At that point, you have to go to the state police and you have to apply for your regular permit to carry. Um, and even the same thing with an eligibility certificate, you still have to go through many of the same steps, but instead of going to your local municipality, you go state right directly to state police. So in every instance here, there's already a built-in waiting period that's two months, maybe more. Um, and even at that, you are cleared by Connecticut State Police in every one of these instances. You cannot buy a single round of 22 ammunition. You cannot buy one in this state without being approved by state police first. That, I, I got to tell you, as a resident of uh, Virginia, that's absolutely insane to me. Um, but again, as you say, it's also incredibly duplicitous for Lieutenant Governor to say, well, you just walk in with the right documentation. That documentation, including the state issued permission slip, right, which which uh, takes weeks to obtain and background checks, you know, but that's the thing, Holly. I mean, if they have to misrepresent what the current law is right in order to make the case, well, we need more gun control laws. What does that say about the laws that are already on the books? And what does it say about their mentality towards voters in Connecticut that they can't level with them and they can't be honest with them? Absolutely. And I think that that is a huge conversation that we need to have. And I'm really hoping that our media starts to pick up on that and presenting it for what it is. Be honest with the people. They're smart enough, educated people that can make decisions, you know, and, um, you know, let them express their opinions. And I was very impressed to see that one of our local papers actually did a survey uh, to do that. But it's a shame, especially from, you know, a woman lieutenant governor who's standing there on, you know, uh, women's, you know, International uh, Women's Day and talking to women that is potentially instilling fear in them. You know, you have no more reason to be afraid that, you know, a, a partner is going to go out and get a gun than, than anything else in a car or any, you know, to 
portray it that way is so reckless and so negligent and doing harm to our communities. Well, and listen, I mean, if if the lieutenant governor wants to go there, let's flip the script, right? Let's talk about the victims of domestic violence, those abusers, those abused who want to escape their abusers, who may have escaped their abusers, but know that that those abusers pose a danger to them. Yeah. Um, under the current law in Connecticut, it sounds like there is no easy way for a woman who has escaped domestic violence to be able to protect herself in case her abusive ex decides to come after her. Absolutely. So it, it is an extremely long process and it's a, an expensive process. So especially for a woman who may have transitioned out of her housing due to that experience, um, she likely doesn't have the funds and more importantly, the time um, to go through that process. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, survivors of violence and how a woman um, in a situation like that, and, and you know, certainly there are men out there too, but predominantly generally is women um, that are in a situation that they might need the means to defense relatively quickly. That's not even possible here. Um, so for her to say that someone can just go with the right documentation, you really need to clarify what that documentation is um, in order to be uh, considered um, not even informed on it, but just be truthful. Um, yeah. it, it's a process. Um, so, you know, really doing people a disservice um, and really there should be some means for people to be able to get an expedited avenue to get a permit, but it just doesn't exist here. You know, uh, you talk about the, uh, the, the, your hope that the media will start to, you know, cover these issues um, more accurately and, and more fairly. Part of that, I think is, is part of the problem is that a lot of the reporters may not understand all of the intricacies of, of Connecticut's law. So they don't their 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 BS meter doesn't get triggered uh, when they hear something like that from the lieutenant governor, whereas it does, you know, uh, trip your alarm bells. Thankfully, at least you had a reporter reach out to you and ask for comment. But how important is it for gun owners and Second Amendment advocates in Connecticut to you not know, just be talking to lawmakers, but to be talking to their friends and family, be talking to their coworkers about you know, what what these bills actually do, what the laws already are, seems like we've got to be sort of our own news outlets uh, to help get the right information out there. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we've talked through the years about a lot of the initiatives that CCDL has, has taken on. We have a huge outreach program where we've got, you know, members in various towns around the state that are that are doing that kind of work and getting out into gun stores. So particularly for new buyers, talking to them about, you know, why they should be engaged in Second Amendment issues, um, but definitely speaking with people. But I think, you know, this has really opened my eyes that, um, you know, as some of my members have suggested we need to be doing more media outreach. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing that because we should be getting to a point where we would kind of trigger their, oh, wait, what was that meter? You know, um, because it doesn't add up. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. And I think for um, your listeners that aren't in Connecticut, like it's so, and I think we talk about this every single time, this is coming to your state. It might be here now, but in 10 years, expect it because these people are leaving in droves, states like Connecticut and New York and California, and they're moving into your communities and they are going to try to try this. So have these conversations now. Don't wait until you're in the position that we're in today. Um, you know, start spreading the good word early um, and let people know what, you know, the, the reality is of lawful gun ownership. Um, and, you know, and don't don't wait. To, don't think that, you know, you're just going to wait on it until it comes knocking at your door. Um, it'll be there before you know it. And, it. and it's insidious. You don't see it until all of a sudden it's it's in front of your legislature. 
Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, all right, so so last question. We'll take it back to those Connecticut gun owners. What what is CCDL uh, telling gun owners to do in Connecticut right now? What 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 is your immediate action item for Second Amendment supporters? So number one, if you're not a member, sign up ccdl.us. It's free to be a member. Just hit join. Um, if you'd like to be a tiered member, you're welcome to do so, but you do not need to be a paying member in order to be one of us and be included. So most important thing, because that way you get our emails and our action alerts. So when we say it's time to do something, you're being notified to do it. And then the next point is when you get the action alert, please do it. Whatever we're asking of you, I promise is not going to take much of your time. It might be five minutes or less. It might be a phone call to your legislator, it might be an email, whatever it is, it's going to be quick and easy. We put all the steps in there. So please sign up so that you get the action alerts. And then when the action alert comes, be ready to do it. Holly, listen, thank you so much, uh, not only for your time today, but for everything that you do. Uh, they were the Connecticut Citizens Defense League defending the Second Amendment in Connecticut. I really appreciate your time. Um, and again, I'm very grateful that we have activists like yourself uh, out there fighting the good fight. Thank you so much, Kim. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll be talking again very soon. Holly Sullivan joining us here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I really do appreciate uh, Holly joining me on the program today, as well as all of her efforts and the efforts, again, of thousands of gun owners across the state of Connecticut. Uh, I know that it can feel like you're fighting. Well, you are fighting an uphill fight, uh, given the Democratic majorities. But your voice matters. Your voice is important. And even if it is disregarded by lawmakers in Hartford, I guarantee you that it is resonating. And people are paying attention around the country um, you know, for no other reason than to show that, again, the vast majority of folks who care about this issue are opposed to these bills. And lawmakers are disregarding what they have to say. Your voice matters. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a, a case out of Baldwin County, Georgia, where there has been, uh, I guess, multiple arrests uh, in the uh, murder of a, a 10-year-old child, Damarian Bird, who was shot and killed while sleeping in his bed. Jarrell Antoine Studge, Shamanica Kira Reeves, Charles Jackson, and Horatia Stevens are all arrested on felony murder charges this week. And as uh, WGXA in Mason points out, a quick look at some of these suspects' past stands out. Uh, the arrest of Horatia Stevens, for example, the first person arrested uh, in Bird's death, stretches over 23 years and more than 60 charges just in Baldwin County. Ranging from drugs to armed robbery, WGXA reports that uh, many court documents show that uh, Stevens was given probation, even for some violent offenses, then violated that probation only to be given more probation and or short stays in jail. Yeah, um, this is I mean, on the one hand, it's not surprising. Right, because we know that again, the vast majority of felony cases in this country end in plea bargains, end in plea deals. But when you see a situation like this, a guy who's nearly 40 years old, whose entire adult life has been filled with court appearance after court appearance on serious charges, and yet there have been no serious consequences. And now you have a 10 year old boy killed in his bed as he slept, and this guy allegedly has something to do with it. Yeah. It should make you angry. It should make you upset. Major Brad King, Baldwin County Sheriff's Office, says it's a little above my pay grade, 
But criminal justice reform, prison reform, change of the probation and parole system. He said, we really find more times than not we have violent crimes that are attached to people with a lengthy criminal history. And we've asked the same question. How is this person not in prison? He says uh, it hits hard when they see criminals to continue to offend time and time again, hurting community members that they swore to protect. He said, quote, this is one of those things that you pray never happens. And yet it does time and time again because the criminal justice system has some real problems. Uh, And not just in blue states, in red states too. Georgia's got pretty good gun laws. But if you got a 39-year-old with more than 60 criminal charges spanning 23 years, including serious crimes like armed robbery and nothing but slaps on the wrist to show for it, yeah, that, that, that's a problem. And uh, while I'm glad that Georgia lawmakers aren't trying to address that problem by negating the rights of law-abiding citizens, <sighs> politicians across the country have some serious work to do when it comes to fighting violent crime. Now, today's Armed citizen story, Chicago, Illinois, where a, a resident of the Dunning neighborhood shot a, a suspected home burglar uh, as uh, one local news outlet reports, burglaries up 54% in this particular part of Chicago in uh, 2023. This is also the same part of Chicago, by the way, where an 80-year-old man uh, defended himself against a, a pair of home invaders back in January. You might remember that story. is near uh, O'Hare Airport. Uh, in this particular case, this was uh, last Sunday, homeowner shot a suspected burglar in his arm uh, about 1.20 Sunday morning inside the uh, the residence there. Homeowner reported that he woke up to the sound of his dog barking. He then called out his son's name, and when no one responded, he grabbed his firearm and started uh, searching his home. He told police when he went to check the basement, his dog ran in front of him and made kind of a dis- noise of distress. That's when he saw a guy in his basement holding a dark object. He told police that he instructed the man not to move, but when the man approached him, he fired one shot. Basement lights reportedly were off during the interaction. The uh, suspect, taken to a local hospital, told officers that, uh, quote, she told me, whoever that is, that the side door would be open. Police say that there was no signs of forced entry on the home side door, and it may have been left unlocked. Uh, Regardless of the uh, rationale for the uh, suspect, 27-year-old Jeremy Pulfit has been charged with residential burglary. The uh, homeowner not facing any charges. We'll uh, keep our eyes on the story, bring you any more details as they become available. But yes, even in Chicago, you've got uh, more folks who are embracing their right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Finally today, our good deed of the day, Erie, Pennsylvania, West Erie, Pennsylvania, where a, a good Samaritan in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help save a stranger from a house fire. Some very scary moments and very serious fire. I mean, there are folks who were were taken to the hospital. A lot of folks left uh, homeless uh, as a result of this blaze. But it could have been worse were it not for this Good Samaritan. It was just driving by, apparently, when they noticed a woman on the porch of this home who was yelling. A motorist pulled over and a woman told him that there was somebody trapped on the second floor of this burning home. Donald Sauer, the uh, chief fire inspector for the City of Erie Fire Department, says the guy tried to go into the apartment, got a couple of feet in, and because of the amount of smoke that was in there, he had to leave. So he went down the stairs, he caught his breath, and and then said, I have to try again. So he went back into the smoke and the fire, this time crawling on the floor, following a man's voice, 
Sarah said he started to feel around. He started to feel the skin on the part of a gentleman's body. When Erie fire crews arrived at the scene, they saw heavy smoke coming from the second floor. Uh, Adam Gaddy, captain of the uh, city of Erie Fire Department, said within about 20 minutes or about 10 minutes, we had the fire down. Under control in about 20 minutes, uh, heavy fire damage to the second floor, water damage on the first floor. That second floor resident uh, listed as critical condition, transported to a local hospital in Pittsburgh, but is alive. The motorist, the Good Samaritan in question, was taken to a local hospital for smoke inhalation. Uh, thankfully, he has been discharged from the hospital. Uh, the family that lives on the first floor of the house, physically unharmed, again, although possessions were lost. The uh, two cats that lived with them reportedly rescued as well. And the uh, city's chief fire inspector says that the Good Samaritan may have made all the difference. He said, quote, it was an unbelievable act that he did. He said, you know, he didn't know the people. He was just driving down the street and he heard someone scream and he ran into the building. So if he wouldn't have gone in there, our guys would have been a couple of minutes trying to get him out. With the smoke that thick in there, a couple of minutes can mean the difference between life or death. So a life-saving moment for this anonymous Good Samaritan. Glad that he has recovered. Glad that he was able to pull that gentleman out of the smoke and the fire. Somehow thanking him for his very good deed doesn't seem quite enough. I hope the uh, city of Erie thanks him officially uh, at some point in the future as well. Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. I'm looking forward to being back with you on Monday. Until then, though, make sure you're checking out BearingArms.com. We have you covered on all of the latest segment of news and information, and there is a lot to talk about these days. So make sure you visit the website multiple times a day. And if you like what you see, I would encourage you to become a VIP member as well. Just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As I was saying, thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. News stories and analysis that matter because your support matters too. So thank you again. All right. Looking forward to being back with you on Monday and looking forward to uh, writing up all of the latest segment of news and information at Varian Arms. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, and yes, be free.